0: Welcome back to A People's Guide to Publishing. I'm Joe Beal, the founder and CEO of Microcosm Publishing and Distribution. I'm also the author of A People's Guide to Publishing, which distills what I've learned from selling millions of books over the past 25 years.
1: I'm Ellie Blue. I'm the editorial and marketing director here at Microcosm. We are an independent midlist publisher based in Portland, Oregon and Cleveland, Ohio. We have over 700 books, over 25 employees, and we make about 40 new books every year. And we distribute thousands of titles from other publishers. We started this
0: podcast so that we can share what we've learned with newer publishers so that you can learn from our mistakes.
1: Or maybe you just want to understand the publishing industry. This week we
0: have special guests to the pod, Danny Kane back for a reprise appearance uh, and a new book. Believe that or not. Uh, how to protect bookstores, which I will remind present company, we proposed doing that book literally that day of the previous podcast recording. So, can you talk a little bit about how we hornswoggled you into this, Danny? <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, I think we, you and I both had the idea to write a book about bookstores. This said, I kind of had the idea in my head. of of telling a similar story about the importance of community and bookstores and small businesses, but telling it from a more, I I don't wanna say positive perspective because it's not necessarily a cheerful book, but from a perspective that shows the possibilities uh, as opposed to the worst of the worst, which the Amazon book does. Um, And so I wanted to tell stories about bookstores that highlighted the, the potential and what bookstores could do. And in chatting after we recorded that podcast over the delicious food at Cafe Avalon uh, in Cleveland, um, you seem to have a similar idea. So we were we were basically on the same page from the get go. And I just fired off like a one or two page proposal and sent it to you and you liked it. And then then I was off on a really fun uh, year or two of research and writing for this book. I was a little sad to turn this one in. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. You seem to have a lot of fun with this one.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was uh, uh, to go, um, of course, like going to other cities and visiting bookstores is basically what my vacations look like. So in a little bit, (laughs) (laughs) it felt like vacation, but it was also really inspiring to get to talk to folks on a deep level about what they believe in and the possibilities of bookstores and what inspires them and what challenges them. And they were really meaningful conversations. Some of folks I already consider friends and some folks I consider new friends after finishing the the research in the book.
1: So what was the research process like? Did you just kind of drop into bookstores around the world and say, hey, can we talk?
2: Oh, no, I I wanted to give them far enough advance. And I've done enough interviews uh, to understand that people really appreciate being able to schedule this (laughs) and not having it uh, sprung upon them. yeah, so for each store, I would email and set up a time and do some research on my own and read their website and whatever's been published about them. In some cases, p- folks have already written really eloquently about their experiences. Uh, and so I would kind of gather that all up and try to get as much of a sense of the background um, of, of the stores as I could, because you don't want, um, if, if you have an hour or two of someone's time, you don't wanna make them do exposition. Like you wanna get to the good stuff right away. And I understand the demands of being a bookstore owner and people don't have time to sit down for six, eight hour interviews. And being a bookstore owner myself, I don't have time to sift through those transcripts but I'm trying to write this book while maintaining an active career as a bookseller. Uh, So I would research and gobble up everything I could about the stores and then I would get to the store and each visit uh, involved an in-depth conversation with at least one of the booksellers, often more than one. Um, as well as just time trying to experience the store as a customer. I wanted to give a sense of the flavor of each space. One of the things that really struck me about these these 11 or 12 stores is they all felt so different on the inside. And there's so many different ways to do it. Some are, are dusty and very old feeling and others are sleek and new. Others are are neighborhoody and still others are really cosmopolitan feeling. And I wanted to give readers, I mean, even that alone is a sense of how how, how many different ways there are to do this bookstore thing. Uh, so yeah, it, it ended up being, you know, a full day of work at each store, um, getting to know the folks and, and the customers in the store itself. Um, so yeah, I, I did that times, what, 11 or 12. And there were even interviews that I just did for background and context that didn't make it into the book. Um, so I ended up visiting more stores than I actually ended up getting written about
0: mm mm-hmm. so you did okay. have fun. How did yes. you choose
1: the first that you wrote about?
2: And it's, um, I, uh, there were a couple factors going into it. I wanted a good mix. I knew there had to be an employee-owned cooperative in there, which is how I got to Red Emma's. And I heard really good things about them reputationally, which from my conversation with them, they live up to 100%. Um, I knew I wanted to really tell the story of, um, of Black-owned bookselling in the United States. And that meant more than one uh, Black-owned bookstore because a lot of things that get written about, you know, one feeling, there's a lot of pressure on, on the folks who run Black-owned bookstores that, that they end up serving as tokens. Um, and I definitely didn't want to do that at all. So there are three Black-owned bookstores in the book, um, one of which, Source Booksellers, is the oldest books Black-owned bookstore in the Midwest. Um, and then a couple of newer ones that are dealing with the issues of of bookselling and Black-owned bookselling in particular. Um, and I knew I wanted an indigenous bookstore, which is how I ended up at Birchbark in Minneapolis. And then beyond that, um, I wanted to tell a broad story of what it means to be a bookstore. And I had an idea of the stories I kind of wanted to tell. Like I knew I wanted to talk about how hard it was to gather financing to open a new bookstore. And I knew my friend Janet from Avid Bookshop in Athens, Georgia, had gone through a lot of that when when she was starting, and so I talked to her about that, and ended up being able to tell that story in what I think is a fairly compelling way. And so it was a, a combination of the stories I wanted to tell and the breadth I wanted for the book, and then it was—I mean, there was a real economic reality of um, of just where I could get to and where I could afford. So a lot of them were in the Midwest, where I could just like throw a suitcase in the trunk of the car and drive, um, and. Um, you know, a couple were cheap flights. And then I did get lucky enough to get to Paris to write about Shakespeare and company. But that was because I got flown out to present at a book selling conference in Prague and bought myself a cheap plane ticket from Prague to Paris. Um, So, I mean, I really love publishing with Microcosm and you guys have done a great job with both of these books and I'm honored to be on the team, but it's like the way these contracts aren't set up aren't such that, you know, I can get a six figure advance and do all this <laughs> research, which is fine. that's just part of the game. But I, I think I was able with my Midwestern bookseller salary to cobble together some pretty good research trips and tell a complete story regardless.
0: And I, I liked how you put that in the book too, that you were yeah. like full disclosure, like the publisher is not paying for me to go to all yeah. these places. I actually just have this much fun but it's yeah. out of pocket. You know? Right.
2: Well, and it's I, I like people, I had heard some good feedback that I was transparent about my own salary and how to resist Amazon and why. And there's no reason to hide that stuff, especially if the book is already dealing with the economic realities of being a bookseller.
0: Right. And that's something like we really dabble in, too. You know, I mean, I've found similarly that people will very freely try to loan you money when you don't need to borrow money and when you desperately need to borrow money nobody will loan it to you because you're a bad risk and you know on that front it's like we've been transparent in well just about everything like we publish our finances annually and you know we give all the profits to the employees and you know like we have a you could look up what we did last year and the year before and the year before that and you know and i and i feel like that is sort of like how you beget trust but similar to what you're doing it's also like how you model mistakes and corrections and like what you've learned from you know decades of doing this so the thing that i appreciated most about like the final book yeah is it's like I hear it every single day of my life where people are like, oh, nobody reads anymore. There's no more bookstores. It's all shot and over. And I'm and you know, like, I know, I mean, cause I like follow the news and read the statistics and like, you know, there's that awesome reporting from NPR about bookstores from 2007 to uh, 2019, I believe it was, and like how much they grew and like how much sales have gone up. And you know, like that's a narrow window but as a Midwesterner, I really appreciated that you, like, focused on that. And I really appreciated the way that you sort of told it as like, a, if you do it right, it's not actually a bad gig. You just have to make, you know, you, you just can't be too idealistic in how you yeah. approach it financially. So why, why was that the story that you wanted to tell?
2: Well, it's, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time, it's been really interesting to um, tour behind How to Resist Amazon and Why. For I mean, that tour has gone on for three years now. I, I just did an event in Roanoke um, for, about the book and, and talking about that has been really interesting in seeing what people respond to. And so um, really often, uh, the successful events are not just um, doom and gloom about Amazon. You need to give people something to hang on to and fight for. Um, and there is good news in in the bookstore world. I mean, almost 100 bookstores owned by people of color have opened the United States in the last three years. And that's amazing news. And And each one of those people have been creative and tenacious enough to get around some really serious obstacles to even opening their bookstore. At the same time, it's really hard to keep a bookstore open. And I think with this new generation of of, uh, bookstores that opened during the pandemic, a lot of them are now seeing the difficult realities as inflation ramps up and the kind of crazy consumer spending of 2021 and 22 is slowing down. it gets to be a tough spot of like okay how do we make this sustainable there was a ton of goodwill when we opened how do we keep this going into something that's going to anchor its community for a long time so it's both um like you want to cheer people up and tell them they're doing a good job by allowing these bookstores to stay open but there is an obligation It's a community uh operation a good bookstore and community is about exchange um what what can the community do for the bookstore and what can the bookstore do for the community and so in in attempting to celebrate the good news but also uh illustrate the challenges that are still there um i I want to make people understand the, the real good that can come from a bookstore but also the the obligation to keep it going to enable that good to keep happening
1: bookstores are one of the few businesses that i can think of this happened to the community grocery store in my hometown when I was, when I lived there. But like, other than that, yeah, I've only ever really seen this about bookstores where like if a bookstore is in financial trouble, often the neighbors will financially bail it out. And that's, I don't know, I guess that does yeah, speak very well of the importance in the community. My question for you though, is like, Um, you know, in publishing, a lot of times we see our fellow publishers and, you know, I'm this way myself, like we get into this business because we love books, not because we're like business minded or know the first thing about what we're doing in business. And I do suspect it's the same way for a lot of new booksellers. Like they they love the books, their heart's in the right place, totally passionate. And then they have to, you know, get a loan or make a budget or run payroll and they're like what the heck and yeah i was wondering like what um your like what have you noticed about like what makes the difference between sort of a financially successful and unsuccessful bookstore like is it the community bailing it out or is it like more about sort of a stable business sense
2: yeah it's a really good question and i think like so often the the uh the answer to any question about bookstores in general is that like it's different for every bookstore, which is part of the fun and part of the challenge. Um, I'm thinking of two two particular examples from the book that can help me talk about this. One of which is um, both bookstores I've mentioned already, but the first is Avid Bookshop. And I think about um, Janet, who's the owner there, told me this anecdote about going to the University of Georgia to speak to their business school. Um, And one of the issues I I talk about in that chapter is finding the right size for your business. Um, And Janet was at two bookstores and then they shrunk to one bookstore. On purpose, and it's just a way of right-sizing their business. And if you listen to business schools or what you would call a good business sense, Ellie, the the idea is expand at all costs. And it's like you, the which is like, I understand is so the context here. It's bad talking, advice. Talking to the people who are in the midst of combining two warehouses, uh, but. Um, it's it's not like the answer isn't always expanding. I'm sure it's right for you guys and you see the demand and you can think about ways to do it sustainably. But at, at these business school talks, um, she had students come up to her and be like, I just want to open a hair salon in my hometown. And every class here is talking to me about IPOs. And so, like, in a way, running a bookstore doesn't necessarily follow the laws of capitalism. Um, because I don't think it is about making anybody rich and it's not about expanding or franchising in every case, Um, but it's more about creating a sustainable business that serves its community. And you've got to ask some questions that aren't necessarily purely capitalist questions to do that. At the same time, um, that doesn't mean you should do things sloppily. And I think about talking to Red Emma's um, who they resist a little bit, the idea that um, an anarchist or a leftist bookstore a, uh, an employee-owned co-op has to be kind of uh, a ragged operation. They're very proud of their systems. They're very serious about developing sustainability, and they wanna develop a system that they can export to other businesses so they can become employee-owned co ops. So they're really serious uh, about making money, which is funny for kind of a bunch of anarchists and socialists, but they're funny because they wanna change the world in a way that there are more democratic, um, environments where people can function and thrive.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I mean, there used to be like a hundred anarchist bookstores like that in the United States. And then like as urban rents went up over yeah. the last 30 years, it's just like one by one, it was just like unbelievable to watch it. And you know, now it's really, well, and this is kind of what I say about bookstores too, is it's like the ones that are well-managed and smart are the ones that like, you know saw ahead foresight to buy their building or yeah. you know we're ahead of the curve on like systems management and you know the thing that i really think about is the like you know and i have a friend that uh, you know he he's an author but he really likes to talk mostly about business and so he's always like i don't believe in the grow at all costs i believe more in the like you have to have new challenges and like learn new things and be excited by like what's going on around Mm -hmm. you and i take it more in the like you want to sort of follow the trajectory of like what's already happening you Mm -hmm. know so like when we added the warehouse you know the people at penguin random house were like wow that's really brazen and brave and you know like you're gonna do that now and we're like well it's not that we're like taking a risk it's that we're like responding to what's happening around us you know and that like we waited too long if anything to do this and you know and so like does that sort of wean into book selling like are you is there or you know i feel like part of the trouble the other end of it is like the problem of being cool is that you will not permanently be cool. It's sort of the nature of, you know, and I feel like as a bookstore, you're often like the cool bookstore, but then that means you can't be the cool bookstore in five years.
2: (laughs) Well, it's, I don't, I am not motivated by being cool. I have never considered myself cool. And it's like throughout all of the attention the Raven has gotten over the last couple of years, um, we have remained focused on, on Lawrence, Kansas. And a lot of our, advocacy and work is um you know it, it touches into amazon and national issues but we still do a lot of work with what lawrence kansas needs and that's i mean the real measure of a sustainability of a bookstore is is how strong the bonds are to its community um and you can you maybe you can't be cool for 35 years but you can be really valuable to your community for a long time and you look at the bookstores that have real longevity. Like think about Paris without Shakespeare and Company, or think about San Francisco without City Lights, or think about Detroit without source booksellers. And these places have, have found ways to become so ingrained and, and so valuable to their communities that it's just impossible to think about those communities without them. Uh, and so that will outlast any fad. Uh, if the bookstore is flexible enough and creative enough to adapt to the changes in their communities and remain essential, to the people that they serve um, that's the uh, that's the secret to success and again that's not what they're going to teach you in an MBA
0: right and to be clear i didn't mean that the raven won't be cool forever the raven <laughs> will be cool forever <laughs> but i mean more that like as an economic driver a bookstore is often like really buoyed by like it's just you know it's an exciting thing that's happening especially when it's new uh-huh. you know and that you can't run on that energy forever right. you you have yeah. to like as you said maintain relevance for your community because they are ultimately the people that you know you like support each other as you said
2: right i mean and it's the the reason i put source booksellers at the end of the book is because janet who's the one of the the owners behalf of the mother-daughter team who runs that store um i was asking her about the relationship between bookstores and community and she basically said bookstores are community there's no relationship because they're one and the same and that felt as good of a place as any to kind of conclude the book
1: i love that i mean so when we first talked about the book which was when we we were recording episode 151 go back and watch it about how to resist amazon i remember i threw out a title idea i think it was like how to support bookstores how Mm -hmm. to support independent bookstores and you were like well that's easy universal health care has that happened (laughs) yet (laughs) (laughs) sadly no but it did make me i mean i do feel like that is like um you know the like community support and coming and like shopping at a bookstore even helping a bookstore in a time of crisis is one thing but like Uh It does seem like if we want to have nice things like bookstores that really are so central to our communities, we do need to do some different things on a more meta on a bigger picture level, yeah, and yeah i mean i was I was wondering yeah, if you could talk a little bit more about like um you know as especially as a independent bookstore as someone who runs one, like what are the societal things that are like kind of almost holding you back from being able to serve that function,
2: sure. Well, it's interesting that verb, the verb in the title, I think was the biggest point of contention in coming up with this book, because Ellie wanted support, Joe wanted save, and neither of them felt right to me. I wanted the religious undertones, you know? (laughs) I'm glad we ended with protect, um, especially because over the course of writing the book, book bookselling has become a more dangerous job, um, which we can talk about later if you want, but that's not the question at hand. the like it's like anything i i talk in the book about how uh like a bookseller can be worried about antitrust policy and the reason that the back door lock is sticking at the same time it's like a collision of of large-scale and small-scale concerns and that's um just one of the unique hallmarks of, of being an activist and being a, a a business owner who makes politics part of what they do um so I think that it, like it, like everything else that comes back to Amazon and what they've done to the market and it's really a broken, the book market and a lot of the online retail market in general is just broken. Um, and that's a hard thing for an individual to fight for um, but there are things you can do. Um, and one of the things I talk about in the book is how it's like a lot of this stuff happens municipally. And it's like, I end a couple chapters on the note that's just like, go to your city council meeting and show up and be a loud voice. And there are so many stories in the book of places where that's worked or where that's important. And it's like, okay, you can't get um, Joe Manchin to change his mind. Um, nobody can do that. But like you can show up to city council and get your three minutes of public comment. Um, and that's that might you know, impact how many tax credits the Amazon warehouse gets or what the minimum wage law in your community is. Um, So there are ways to shape policy that aren't federal, um, and and that's important. But at the same time, I mean, like policy is a good way to protect bookstores. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go to France is because they've got it figured out in many ways that the United States doesn't. And the the striking thing to me, the fact I keep getting hung up on is that Paris, which is a city of 2.5 million people, has a thousand bookstores. and that's if you compare a US city of that size, that's Chicago who has 55 bookstores. And the main reason why Paris and France in general can have such thriving bookstores is because Paris and their government have decided that bookstores are a cultural asset in France. And just like cheese and just like wine, they have policy to protect that cultural asset. And the main policy they have is called the Lang Law, which says that nobody, regardless of size or scope, can discount a book more than 5%. And that—that alone—it was passed in 1981. In the last 40 years, that alone has created this thriving um, and really diverse uh, bookstore scene. And so, like, policy can work, and really simple policy, and it's worth fighting for. But I know it can get frustrating, and so that's why there's always the option of of showing up at city hall too.
0: Right, I love that, and you know, and it's like such a simple, basic law that mm-hmm. would have like completely circumvented. Amazon that would have completely yeah. like prevented any kind of market dominance like we saw in the United States that's fascinating I did not I did not know that France had this but that makes perfect sense I mean I remember when Amazon tried to close their warehousing in France, you know, when there was a strike, and the French government was like, "Oh no, you actually cannot do that." Yeah, <laughs> and right. I, was like, I was like, ooh." I mean, the other be- thing
2: about the other thing about Paris is uh, in France is boy, do they know how to strike, and the the labor union is the labor union movement is so much more active and vibrant there. And it's like the one thing one of the people I talked to about the Langlois represented a bookstore association, which is actually legally defined as a union. So, like, imagine. If the aba was a union and like that's how the bookstores are organized in france uh even the owners are, are unionized together and so that's just like organized labor pro small business policy can really make a big difference um in in the vibrancy of, of bookstores and, and like communities too like you just walk around in pair it's like there's there's so much vibrant life on the sidewalk. It's not. Per- it's like, of course, it's not paradise. But in in, the, in terms of, of bookstores and small businesses, I think they really have some things figured out.
0: Right. And that, yeah, that's I mean, you know, and, and the U.S. is shifting back in that direction culturally. Like we've had the rise of unions, we've had the rise mm-hmm. of like labor stand downs and bordering on strikes this couple past years you know which is like a major shift i mean that's not been that way like we've kind of strayed from that culture for some time but you know it's like yeah we're not to the degree of like Mm -hmm. federal protections or things like that and the the statistic that i struck upon which i don't remember though correct me if i'm wrong being in either book is that amazon is 25 times the actually more than 25 times the size of all big five publishers combined or more than 10 times the size of the entire publishing industry Hmm. which like that was kind of the point where i was like and i only stumbled into this because somebody was trolling me on reddit and like really (laughs) wanted to go on about how it wasn't amazon that was the problem it was the big five and i was like well, this is all public information, we can get to the bottom of it. <laughs> but that like really struck mm-hmm. me because I was like, right, so it's like 10 times the size of books. Like we're now more than an afterthought. But so like, you know, I I guess that's, and you know, and you, and you, the other books, the questions we got most frequently when we were just talking about your book to booksellers into the industry is they were like, well, how is it different from you know that book that came out last year from Yale or like you know these other ones and they're like well those all ones all like wax philosophical about bookstores whereas like mm-hmm. there will be actual information and how to and you know this will be a lot more pragmatic of a book you know and yeah. so was that some, i mean i'm guessing that was an intentional choice or like maybe just fundamentally who you are
2: yeah i think it's a little bit of both um and it, it is important for me i think there's a tendency um in a lot of uh kind of a-list nonfiction um to just um towards i guess objectivity um and and having a remove and like being afraid or like being non-willing or not just not able to call something evil like uh you know these big hardback nonfiction books about Amazon aren't gonna outright say Amazon is bad, and like of course like no that's not a story the big five wants to tell because they are they they rely on Amazon for so much, and I understand why they're they're not happy about relying on Amazon so much, but still half of their business or more is coming from Amazon. Um, but I mean it's different audiences, it, like the the thing about this fight. Um, and just the thing about my politics in general is that there's there's got to be a lot of different ways to fight, um, and I I have chosen to to write books with a lot of focus on action and individual steps for a broad audience um, that are that are easy to read and I dare I say accessible, um, and um, that's important. And I'm my goal is to broaden the conversation and to have tools where booksellers can can use in in having these discussions with their customers at the same time i think it is really important for people to have a a serious philosophical tome on the importance of of literature and bookstore and it's like i'm really excited about um josh cook's book the art of libromancy which is out from biblioasis we're doing events together um, and they're both about the importance of bookstores and booksellers but um he I think takes a much more serious and in philosophical approach to it, and he's he's looking at and ass- his the book is an essay collection about the philosophy and the art of bookselling. Whereas I'm I've got these political steps to protect their ability to do that, and both of them are important books. Uh, so it, it's a big fight. Um, we need a lot of people in it, uh, and um, yeah.
1: So speaking of protecting booksellers' ability to sell books, uh, what has been your experience of book bans?
2: You know, we've been pretty lucky um, in Lawrence. Um, We have a really supportive community. Um, I've been in, I've been talking to our librarians and we haven't heard much um, in town, but like less than an hour away uh, in St. Mary's, Kansas, um, there was a really serious effort to basically shut down their public library. And it was um, the, the, the library leases the space from the city and the city commission decided to put a morality clause in their lease renewal that said they wouldn't sell, they wouldn't have any divisive material. Um, At a in a library. In, in, right, wow. including, and they they mentioned they had their dog whistles in there. Of, um, I forgot what, what the phrases were, but they definitely mentioned critical race theory, but it was just total dog whistles. And the librarian refused to sign it, and then the city was like, "Okay, we aren't going to renew your lease." And then there was tremendous um, public outcry, including just really city com- a couple of city commission meetings that were just packed with library supporters, and they eventually got the city commission to back down and just offer a clean lease renewal for one year. I'm sure they're going to try it again, but a, but still, the what solved it was was public outcry and people showing up to the meetings. And the really scary part is. The first people that were reporting on this were the Kansas Reflector, which is a tiny nonprofit newspaper um, that was started by people who worked at the Topeka Capital Journal, but then were left without a journalistic home when that newspaper was bought out. I think Gannett, one of the monopoly gobblers of newspapers. And so they started this tiny nonprofit um, newspaper and like without that article and without that reporter working on the story, I'm not sure anyone would have heard about it and that would have been a really different story. And so that's why I end up writing about libraries and newspapers and bookstores because they're it's kind of the holy trinity of community. They all work together and they were all really important signs of the health of a community. And it's kind of scary to think about a, a community without them.
0: Yeah, wow, that is, I mean, that is shocking. Like every inch of that is shocking that I yeah. I started out being like, can you repeat the name of that book, which I since found and <laughs> we're going to stock it because of you.
2: <laughs> so good work.
0: <laughs> and then by the end, I was just like, my jaw is on the floor. I know How my my wonderful
2: editor, um, Olivia had to kind of dial me back on the St. Mary's story a little bit. Was, I really, really wanted to go in depth. And I think someone needs to write a book about this town because there's all sorts of crazy other stuff. Uh, but Olivia, bless her heart, was like, this is a good story. It's really interesting. Parts of it are relevant to your book. And let's stick to those parts. That's Olivia,
0: <laughs> she's she's a diplomat. She's going to yeah. like run the UN in a few years. That, I mean, and that, you know, we have we have things all the time where, she, like, you know, the way she'll talk to me about something is very different than the way she'll talk to, like, the person who is, like, uh-huh. much more emotionally invested in it. And I'm, like, she is good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she did a great job.
0: Mm-hmm. So what? But that, you know, and, like, we had this an hour away in Boring, Oregon. Like, it was mm-hmm. a similar kind of thing. And this was 20, 25 years ago where they shut down the public library because they were, like, I just don't want to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, nowadays, everything is, it's like a posturing political fight way more than it's like a fiscal conservancy fight, you know? And so are you seeing that aspect running into bookselling? Or is that, you know, I, I mean, I've heard stories where, like, um, there was somebody in the UP that was like, it's scary because sometimes you'll be alone in the store and some dude will come in and he'll shout at you. Do you even have this book or do you sell critical race theory and you have to like diffuse the situation?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean um, de-escalation is, is increasingly a, a super important skill for booksellers. And it's like, none of us want to be in the middle of a culture war, but we are here. We are. Uh, and, and I think the tide is turning a little bit, um, in fortunate ways. And it's, I really think the, the right as it's, as it's operating in the country right now is completely empty of any actual ideas. They are, they are operating in opposition to things that they are scared of or things they think are ickier. I don't even know. It's hard for me to wrap my head around it, but they, they just try to fire up the base by being in opposite, they pick easy targets to punch down on and they, it's like okay, trans people and books about them, this'll get people angry. So we're gonna focus on this. And, and I think the courts are beginning to show it. And I think it's really important to like actually these crazy laws that are getting passed to try to hold them up to legal scrutiny because they'll fall apart, hopefully, fingers crossed um and so i like the the aba um has sued in arkansas and texas on on their super restrictive book bans um i am excited to see how those go and i would hope that this texas law kind of falls apart under legal scrutiny if the first amendment means anything um the the texas law won't be allowed to stand and so um but at the same time i mean it's it's that that split between like very, really big concerns and really small concerns, and you'd be like, okay, Texas, this law has really bad recriminations against the First Amendment, but uh, here's this guy who's asking us um, to order Mein Kampf or whatever, and and you have to be able to deal with both. Um, and so a lot of it is 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 just that is de-escalation. Um, it's 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 a tricky discussion, and I think a lot of bookstores handle it really differently. Like in theory, you wanna be a home for everybody. And at what where's the line between like welcoming this person and this person impacting everybody else's ability to find a home here. And that's like, that's why book selling is a human art. Um, cause I mean, we've got people on the team who are really, really good at that. And, and they're really important to have on the team cause they can diffuse those situations. They can make people feel heard, but still let them know that certain behaviors and, and actions aren't welcome in a place like this. Um, and like, again, that's like, that's really complicated and nuanced. And that's why book selling is a, is a human. Um, it has to be done by, by humans and compassionate humans at that.
1: I love that. I just want to ask one more question. Cause I know you have to save your voice to record the audio book. We're all excited to hear it. Um, if it, if the end is a little scratchy, you know it's our fault. Okay. No um, worries, <laughs> but I was reflecting back on when we first, um, started to work with you when you had published the how to resist amazon and YZine, zine which you initially self-published and we started working with you to publish it and then i saw your name start popping up everywhere and it was always in conjunction with some like great pandemic related idea like you were doing bicycle deliveries of books and you were doing um like an initiative where people could kind of like pay to buy books for somebody who mm-hmm. could afford books and people could write in and I just feel like with a marketing mind like yours like I would like to put you in charge of responding to the current issues facing book selling especially the book bans what what are your do you have like creative ideas for what what could be done maybe maybe something somebody could pick up and run with Mm -hmm. in order to kind of like put an end to these culture wars
2: uh, that's a good question. I wish it would be a million dollar idea.
1: <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Yeah, yeah, let's like, Put it out on our podcast it's right a, now. It's <laughs>
2: right. The idea is um, like I, I keep coming back to the idea that if you do something well and you you make enough connections in your community, you just keep doing what you're doing. Um, and, and so I. Um, it's easy to worry about the national book bans. And I think we have to, and I think that's like, I'm on the ABA board. We've been really encouraging uh, publishers and the ABA to fight back against this. And like when publishers ask us for feedback, uh, nine times out of 10, what we tell them is, you are not doing enough for your authors um, and you need to fight uh, for these books and these readers. And I think the um, we're seeing some, some more effort from publishers too. Um, another thing that i get hung up on is a little bit like you don't i one of my my personal policies um, it sounds like maybe joe doesn't have this policy but like i don't get into bad faith arguments online um just it's not worth it to me and my my personal stamina and a lot of this is just a big bad faith argument and like if you keep serving your community like you're not gonna win against a far-right troll um they will find ways of of uh, just defeating you in public. And so like, there's a little bit that's like, we're gonna focus on our community and what they need and not this person who has never been to our store and knows nothing about us. And so I think like the, the one of the most inspiring stories from my own store, and I, can, I feel like I can talk about this because it wasn't my idea. It was organized by some of our other owners. Uh, and so I can, I can give them all the flowers they deserve um, without kind of congratulating myself. Uh, is we just had a queer mixer where we closed an hour early and sent out invitations and said, like, the store is is a space for queer people for these two hours on a Thursday night. We're going to order some, some books that they might be interested in, some organizations are going to table, we're going to have resources for people to file, um, you know, legal name changes before Kansas passes their crazy anti-trans law. Um, And it was a huge, joyful night. It was really wonderful. The store was packed and we got a ton of thank yous and the photos from it were really lovely. Um, And like, that's it to me. Um, And we did the same thing for librarians and teachers actually. So we had these two mixer nights and it's like, we know it's hard right now for, for you folks. We've got a space we can open it just for you we can try to do some stuff that's tailored directly to you and you can just come and and be yourselves and be here and and uh be safe from the trolls for at least 2 hours and like that's what you do and like it's it's so local and it's so community driven but that's what um you know, that's what bookstores can do. And I would much rather host a queer mixer or a celebration night for librarians than, than try to get into a fight with all the trolls who wanna ban all of these these YA books. it's like, let's let the judges take care of that and let's just support our community uh, in what they need.
0: Well, to your point, I have a happy ending to that story. So, and i ellie will swear up and down that i taught her this and i will swear up and down that she taught me this so which is kind of like how most things go in microcosm is most people don't take like credit for the best ideas but what i do is i will like put a objective citation in front of somebody that like politely refutes the presumption they've made that's wrong you know and that was what i did and i did have to do it maybe in your defense 10 or 11 times. (laughs) But Reddit, not exactly a bastion of positive discourse on the internet, deleted this person's account. Okay. So who the hell knows like, right. what he said in response the 12th time? You know? okay.
2: Well, like but, I said, it's, it's a fight that requires lots of different skills. And Joe, I'm glad you're there taking on the trolls.
0: <laughs> but my point is that, you know, and like I think of this on a different level where like I'm thinking about this for everybody that's watching and watching me not cave to these bad faith arguments and like watching me be like, here is another AAP report about like, what is actually happening in the world of publishing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because that's the audience I'm always concerned about. It's not like some asshole that's like, oh, you don't even know, you know, LOL. And and so, but the note I want to end on is that I saw a tweet this morning, which was like, the publishing that I'm invested in comes from a place of empathy. This is very badly paraphrased or maybe very well paraphrased, who can really say. And when I see publishing that's not coming from a place of empathy, like that's when I disinvest. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, and I think like, that's why your books resonate so much is that like, you're so concerned about like the reader, the people you're writing about the, like all of the various stakeholders that are, Composed to the art of what you're doing, and you know, to that question, I would say, like,
2: what are you going to do next? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I, after spending um, uh, what amounts to, gosh, five or six beautiful years of of nonfiction with Microcosm, I am knee deep in a poetry book right now um so i think the tentative title is jewish american dream it's um, reckoning with um a lot of the questions of of being in an interfaith marriage of raising a child of just uh being a, a contemporary american jew um and it's it's been really really rewarding to just like sink into poetry i mean i've loved writing these books but i've missed my buddy poetry for a while here uh so that's where i'm at uh, but if I come up with another good empathetic action-based nonfiction proposal, you guys are going to be the first to hear about it.
0: Poetry can be empathetic too, and um,
2: if you <laughs> if you need
0: if you need more positive encouragement, my best friend is a poet, and she was like, "Danny is like a good poet," and, <laughs> and she doesn't offer that one lately. Okay, so cool. there you go. I'm glad to hear it.
1: And. <laughs> Everybody read Danny's poetry after you're done with.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And thanks so much
0: for joining us. Yeah. Thank
2: you both for everything. This is a fun conversation.
0: Thanks for joining us once again.
1: Please send your questions to podcast at microcosmpublishing.com so we can answer them on future episodes.
0: And please give us five stars on iTunes and everywhere else that podcasts are reviewed.
1: You can find us on the internet at microcosm.pub.
0: On Twitter at Microcosm.
1: On Facebook at Microcosm Publishing.
0: On Instagram at Microcosm underscore pub.
1: And here in Portland, Oregon on North Williams Avenue.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Have a wonderful week.